Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 21. If you need to get up and stretch and get a coffee, I got one myself. Feel free. No judgment today. Maybe tomorrow. I want to read the passage, the theme verse of the weekend. As you turn to John chapter 21. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Four words. Lord of the harvest. That is what we're going to focus our attention on. Yes, the church is commanded to reach the lost, make disciples, but make no mistake, Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. After all, the glorious message that we proclaim is not mere doctrine. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1 verse 28 says, it's him that we proclaim. It's Christ that we proclaim. But it gets better. He's not just the message. Verse 29 of Colossians chapter 1. Paul and the boys are tired. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. But not only is Christ the message, not only does Christ supply the energy for his work, make no mistake, Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5 and 6. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned each, I planted, Apollos watered. I love the way the NSB says it, but God causes the growth. Christ himself is the Lord of the harvest. You ask me, why do we need to hear these words on a Monday morning? What difference does it make you know, when we think of the Lordship of Christ and then we, we, we talk about the sovereignty of Christ, some people get a little uneasy. <laughs> I mean, the topic of God's sovereignty, uh, you know, there's been some, uh, some division over that. Split churches, denominations. Others, they haven't split. They just sit back with apathy sleeping in their prayer closets. The Lord will do it. The Lord will save. But what if, what if we got a vision, a vision of Christ, so majestic, so great, so magnificent that it unified the church, not divided the church. And it sent us out, captivated by his glorious 
might, and sovereignty. John chapter 21, we're going to see four remarkable truths in this passage. We're going to read the first 14 verses. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel, Cana, and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to him, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. Then they went out into the boat. But the night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. I love his definition of some, 153. So they cast it and now they were able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish that Jesus, um, sorry, that the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put a, on his outer garment for he was stripped for work. He threw himself into the sea. I love that. Verse eight, the other disciples came on the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were far from the land, but they about a hundred yards off. When they got onto the land, they saw charcoal fire in a place where fish laid upon it with bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad, hauled in the net ashore full of fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. So with the fish. This was the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. God, we want a fresh vision of the majestic power of Jesus. We thank you that you do still speak to us. We've encountered you this weekend. We do not just presume, but we ask that you would speak to us by your living and inerrant word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk about four remarkable ways Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. And by extension, how we respond to those four remarkable ways. First, Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. Therefore, we must surrender. It was Christ himself who called and commissioned these disciples to be 
fishers of men. Do you remember, recall that similar occasion in Luke chapter 5 when the Lord Jesus called Peter? You see, the Lord Jesus was doing some Bible teaching. Peter said, I want to be used of the Lord. Here's my boat. I mean, Jesus is a lot better Bible teacher than Peter. So Peter says, I'll do anything to let this guy preach. Jesus does an amazing job expounding the, preach, the, the passage of Scripture. We don't know exactly what it was. But then things change. Peter goes fishing all night, and the Lord Jesus says, so how was the fishing trip? Well, we didn't catch anything all night. Jesus says, well, have your, have your nets on the other side. Peter's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'll give you my boat for preaching, but I'm the expert fisherman, <laughs> right? I'm trained in this kind of stuff. You stick to the synagogue, I stick to the fishing. And we know what happens. The nets are breaking. Explosion of blessing. Do you remember the response of Peter? Let me read it. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at his knees saying, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who are with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. You see, that day Peter learned the Lord is the Lord of the fishes, not just the synagogue. Jesus Christ is Lord, not just of theology. He's Lord of absolutely everything. There is no sphere in your life or in my life that Jesus isn't over. Now, Peter... After several years, ups and downs, many downs, many ups, beholding the Lord Jesus, the Mount of Transfiguration. Oh, that was a good one, wasn't it? Remember the sinking depths of failure when he denied his Lord? Peter was truly on a spiritual roller coaster, wasn't he? Jesus reminds Peter afresh in this passage of his lordship over all creation. I am the Lord of the fish. Observe with me one striking contrast. There's many. Luke chapter 5, they were breaking. The nets were breaking, but this time there's a miracle within the miracle. Notice what our passage says. It says the net did not break. Perhaps a little lesson for Peter that God is going to preserve him. Have you come to grips with the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord over everything? We've heard Jesus Christ is Lord over Norm's cars, over our houses, over our businesses. Oh, we get so excited. Don't we? If only I can take two weeks to go to Freedom, California. If only I can go see what's happening in Winnipeg. If only I can go up north. 
And God may be calling you there this weekend. And I don't want to diminish that. But God, Christ, desires to enter into every field of your life. Your marriage is ministry. Your secular job is ministry. You think your coworkers want to hear a 45-minute exposition of John's gospel by me? No. They want, what they do want is for you to say, hey, is there anything I can pray for you? Oh, let us not departmentalize our lives, but let Christ enter every nick and cranny in our life. Oh, come us, brothers and sisters. Behold the beauty of Christ over creation and yes, over your life. Make no mistakes, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether you recognize it or not, he is Lord. Second, Christ is Lord. Christ is provider. Therefore, we must live by faith. Back to our passage, observe verse 4. He, what does he call them? Little children, some translations. My friends. He uses the same word in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4-ish, when he says, my little children to the family of God. We are the children in Christ as a fatherly care. I'm not... Speaking heresy, Brad, on the Trinity, I'm talking about his posture towards us, loving us, cares for us. And our job is to be dependent upon him. This is the eighth miracle in John's gospel. The first seven were signs. John chapter 20, verse 31 says, These things are written to you that we might know that he is the Son of God and that we might have life in his name. Oh, and John, I got to do a sidetrack here. John does an amazing job at this, doesn't he? First miracle, he provides wine at, at a wedding. We'll talk about that in a moment. But second miracle... Second miracle, there's this, this nobleman. And he's like, Jesus, I heard about you. You're awesome. Can you come? You need to come. I was actually reading it today. It just says, and I don't know about the Greek, but he, he says, come, come now. You gotta come. He's near to death. You gotta come now. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'll heal him right on the spot. I heal him. And he does. And the guy fi figures out two days later, is that that exact time? Praise Jesus. That's the second miracle. The sixth miracle. My brother's dying. Jesus says, oh, he's, he's not really going to die. I got some stuff to do. And they say, but, but you love him, don't you? You love Lazarus. Yeah, I love him, but I got some stuff to do. I got to do my father's business. So does some stuff a couple days later. Oh, it's too late, Jesus. It's too late. 
You missed your chance, Jesus. Lazarus, rise up. <laughs> Boom. He's alive. So that first one, Jesus, what does he do? He heals from a distance. Second one, in person. First one, he was near unto death. Healed him before death. The sixth miracle, heals him from death. Raises him from the dead. Take John chapter five. The third miracle. There's a guy that's been lame, I think it was what, 38 years? Oh, Jesus, I'm so stoked you're here. Can you give me a lift to the pool of Shalom? If you just hook me up and take me to the pool, I'll be good. You know, sometimes the pool, you know, it does some magic stuff. Depends what translation you have there. But yeah, you go to the pool and I'll be healed. Jesus says, rise up and walk. What is Jesus saying? Don't trust in the pool. Trust in me. I am Lord of your body. Okay, well then how about the fifth sign? There's this beggar in John chapter 9. <laughs> and uh, he, he can't see. He's blind. So the Lord Jesus comes up to him. Could heal him on the spot. He doesn't. Spits on the ground. Takes it up. Anoint, uh, anoints his eyes and says, go wash where? Where did he wash? Do we remember? The pool of Shalom. First one, you don't need the pool. Second one, go to the pool. Trust me. You see what's going on here? John is deliberately showing us that our God is sufficient to save that Christ alone saves. He could do it from afar. He could do it in person. He cannot use a pool. He can use the pool. There is no obstacle too great for our Jesus to save. And some of us are saying, oh, God will never save my sister. She grew up hearing the gospel every Sunday night for years. She has too many burnt out experiences about Christianity and how it's represented. She'll never get saved. That's my heart. You have family members, don't you, that you write off? Friends that you write off? Jesus doesn't write them off. The Lord's arm is not too short to save. Oh, that he saves. John is teaching us and convincing us that Jesus is sufficient to save sinners like you and me and the neighbors and the nations. But what do we do with the eighth miracle here? Some liberal scholars say, well, it's just added in. No, 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 no. You see, what's happening here now is he's not convincing us of our salvation, but our sanctification. In John chapter one with the, the, uh, the, the account of the water and the wine, John records this. He says, this is the first sign to manifest the glory of God. 
But I want to show you something. Let's go to verse 1 of our passage. What does it say? After this, Jesus revealed himself. Himself. This word revealed, to manifest himself. Not so much manifest his glory, the package of salvation. Now what he's doing is manifesting himself. Look at verse 14. Now this was the third time that Jesus revealed, manifested himself. If you highlight your Bible, that would be a good one, wouldn't it? Verse 1 and verse 14, he's manifesting himself. You got a taste of what I can do. Some of you have had a taste of what God can do in your life, and that's great, and I don't want to diminish that, but God is saying, I want you to taste me, that I am good. And so Jesus is teaching them that yes, I'm going away, John 14, I'm going to leave you, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will dine with you. Jesus provides 153 fish. Notice, as they're doing that, Jesus already has, so he he gives them the 153, but notice there's already bread and already fish waiting. I don't know how he got the fish. He must be God. You see, sometimes we get so excited. Yesterday, we were talking about the work of the Lord. I got so excited. I forget some of these things. People always told us, write things down on what, what God's doing, and I forgot, and I'm just rejoicing in God's work. And, and even with Norm, I'm rejoicing in God's work. And that's a good thing. John chapter four. What does the Lord Jesus say? My food is to do the will of him who sent me. We are to, so to speak, enjoy the work of the Lord. But the Lord Jesus essentially is saying, before you eat of what you caught, feast on what I've provided you. Don't get so caught up on what you're doing. But see what I've provided. I provided you a table spread for you to eat. Oh, brothers and sisters, he provides for us. Therefore, we must live radically. Live by faith, not by sight. When was the last time you prayed for something that if someone found out, they would mock you? Like a plane. I was reading last night of uh, C.T. Studd. This is what he says, missionary to China. Christ wants not nibblers of the possible, but grabbers of the impossible. Oh, brothers and sisters, the Lord provides lavishly for his people, for his glory. Why? Because Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. Third, Christ restores. Therefore, we must be 
quick to repent and continue. Now, we haven't read the entire passage in John chapter 21, but we learn that Jesus is the best restorer. Perhaps you're here and you're burdened by guilt, perhaps past guilt, and it's a stumbling block for you. I'm glad you're here. This is the place to be. Sometimes we think it's the last place we should be at church under God's word, but it's the first place we need to run. Maybe you're here and you're currently in sin. I'm glad you're here. Because God gives us good news for bad people like you and I, me. Observe the setting. Jesus has the coals of fire ready. Remember the last time there were coals of fire? It was Peter when he denied the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be like if someone committed an awful sin, say at a hotel or something, and the Lord Jesus went to the hotel and said, that's where you sinned. Let's have a conversation. And we see the Lord Jesus three times in this passage asks Peter one question, do you love me? Each question was unearthing in Peter the sin behind his sin of denial. You see, Peter's sin wasn't merely denying Christ. It was that he loved his reputation better than Christ. And it's remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable what Christ does. He restores and gives Peter a mission. But this isn't the first time that Peter messes up. And it won't be the last time that you, you mess up as well. Remember Galatians chapter 2? Peter, he loves the Christians. He loves the church. Well, kind of. <laughs> kind of. You see, there's this part of the church called the Gentiles. And um, yeah, he, he gets along with them. But when the big shots come from Jerusalem... I can't be eating with you, you pork-loving people. And he segregates himself, the sin of segregation. We learned about that just last session. God hates that. Paul says, you're out of step with the gospel. And he rebukes him. But you know what Paul, the apostle, does? He doesn't just rebuke him. He restores him. You see, the conversation continues. The conversation actually goes right to the end of the chapter. And these famous words were actually spoken to Peter. And it's these ones. You perhaps memorized it in Bible camp. I have been crucified with Christ. He's speaking this to Peter. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Here's the part I want you to get. Who loved me and gave himself for me. He's reminding Peter of the love of Jesus. Essentially, he's saying, hey, Peter, can you pick the nastiest Gentile that, that just got converted and they've got some rough edges? They still like the Baconator from Wendy's. He says, I want you to put your name in there. 
the Son of God who loved the pagan Gentile and gave himself for the pagan Gentile. Now, did Peter learn this lesson? I woke up today. I was telling Nathan, I woke up today and I said, I got a verse for this. It's in 1 Peter 5, but I have no clue what it says. So I went in 1 Peter 5. You know what it says? It says, greet one another with the kiss of love. Love. So he went not eating with them and now he wants to kiss them with love. You say, man, Peter's a wreck. No, no, no. Christ uses Peter. Why? Because Peter is not sovereign. Peter is not Lord. Who's the Lord of the harvest? Jesus. And he uses Peter as the rock to cause a revival. Not because Peter was a great performer, but because Peter was a great repenter. It was Peter who preached that first sermon at Pentecost, over 3,000 people getting saved. Are you quick to repent? The world is sick of performers. It's refreshing, isn't it? To walk in humility, to meet someone that doesn't try to always impress you. That says, yeah, I messed up. In your workplace, how, how amazing would it be? You're the Christian. You have it all together. Say, man, last night I had a fight with my wife. I'm such a bad husband. But you know what? By God's grace, she forgave me. I'm so sorry that I was a jerk to you yesterday. That's not what the world needs to see. More humility, not pride. God used Moses, a murmuring, a murmuring murderer, to be his mouthpiece. It took decades in the wilderness leading sheep before God chose Moses to shepherd his people. And God produced Moses, the meekest person on earth. God desires to use you and me to expand his kingdom. And there's no past failure that he will not forgive and cleanse you of. Our Lord Jesus is the Lord of restoration. Fourth point. Christ leads. He leads his people into victory. He leads not only to victory, but from victory of the cross. What's our response? We must follow. He takes the initiative. He knows the end from the beginning. Notice with me, John chapter 21, verse 19. This he said to show what kind of death he was to, glor he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said, follow me. <laughs> you see, Jesus, the context here, Jesus says, you're going to die by crucifixion, essentially. You're going to die. It's going to be miserable, Peter. And yet at the very same time, it's going to be glorious because you're following in my footsteps. Take a look at verse 22. Peter's looking around. 
asking about John. He said, Jesus said to him, if it is my will, he will remain until I come. I love this part. What is it to you? My translation, none of your business. You follow me. You see, Peter had one last lesson to learn. Get your eyes off other people. Get your eyes off what other servants of God are doing. That's great. We can rejoice with Norm. We can rejoice with Scott. We can rejoice with all these other people. But don't you dare compare yourself to them. You don't know what kind of struggles they have. John, yes, he, he, he led, led a longer life, but he was able to, to write this book and then the book of Revelation that everyone argues over rather than worship God over. Each of us has assignment of God, but we're not gonna get there if we're looking at the next church, at the next chapel, at the next person we're going to get there if we look to the Lord of the harvest. You see, in Luke chapter 5, Peter recognizes the lordship of Christ and says, depart from me, I'm sinful. And that's an appropriate response, isn't it? Isaiah 6, same thing. Whoa. But I'll tell you what grace does. What grace does is Peter sees the Lord of the harvest and when he finds out that it's the Lord, this time he doesn't back away. This time he puts his garment on and he starts swimming to Jesus. That's what radical grace does. Let us not distance ourselves to the Lord Jesus, but let us swim to the Lord Jesus. Let us run to him. He is the Lord of the harvest. His lordship demands our surrender. His provision requires a life of faith. His restoration commands our progress, our repentance and our progress. His leadership demands us to follow. Let's pray. God, we want to rejoice that the victory has been won, that you have defeated that your son has defeated death, the grave, and hell. And so, Father, let us not be sidetracked by other people, but let us look to Jesus, the Lord of the harvest. In Jesus' name, amen.